Welcome to Digital Health Talks. Each week, we meet with the healthcare leaders making a measurable difference in equity, access, and quality. Hear about what tech is worth investing in and what isn't as we focus on the innovations that deliver. Join me, Megan Antonelli, and my friend, Shahid Shah, for our weekly No BS Deep Dives into what's really making an impact in healthcare. Welcome, Health Impact audience. There wouldn't be a health impact, a modern one, without a discussion about physician burnout, clinician burnout in general. And we've got a great lineup here to talk from a nurse's angle, a doctor's angle, and a technology specialist angle about what each of us think about the general topic of burnout. But in special uh, health impact format, we're going to clear away all the BS and get to the realities of what could we actually do with burnout. And so I'm really excited and uh, ready to talk to Deb, Ashish, and uh, Chris. We're going to have each one of them introduce each other, and then we'll jump into a quick conversation. Uh, So Deb, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, Good afternoon. I'm Deb Murrow. I'm the Chief Information Officer at El Camino Health. We're located in the Silicon Valley, and so we have a bit of pressure here to provide high technology, but also have happy physicians. I am a nurse. Uh, is my background, and I moved into IT years ago, and I love that intersection between the clinician and technology. That's my real passion. Perfect. Welcome, welcome. Uh, Ashish. Hi, everyone. This is Ashish Atreja. I'm CIO and Chief Digital Health Officer at uh, UC Davis Health. Uh, UC Davis serves the Central Valley area, 33 counties in California, and um, I'm a physician by training, and the goal is to unify this new emerging field of digital health and innovation with IT. And prior to that, I was Mount Sinai. And I'm known as an app doctor. Uh, We built an app formulary so we can automate many of the processes for patient care. That's fantastic. Uh, Christopher. Yeah. Hello, everyone. I'm Christopher Cunney. I serve as chief of strategy and business development for a company called DSS Incorporated and specifically our commercial line business under Juno Health. We are actually in the process of launching a next-generation cloud-based acute care EHR to go after the market. Mm. My background is 30-plus years in the IT field, about 20 or so of that in healthcare. I'm actually a former CIO as well uh, for a large healthcare system, and I've served as an advisor and strategist for both Fortune 500 as far as, and as well as mid-sized startups uh, in the space of healthcare technology. I also serve as an adjunct professor in healthcare informatics at Morehouse School of Medicine. Excellent. Uh, so, man, 30 years, that's a, that's a long time. You, you started when you were 15, I guess, um, in, your, in your career, right? Uh, so, yeah. no, that's fantastic. So, you see, we've got a great lineup here. Let's start with the first question, though. I mean, we're all, from especially the clinician's angle, tired of hearing about burnout, but nobody actually doing something about it. And so we could almost play this role here where Deb and Ashish can talk about the realities and the complaints. And then Christopher can say, well, we've got this solution, we've got that other solution, uh, et cetera, and have a good discussion around that. So given that we have two clinicians on the panel here, let's start, Deb, with you and let us know, you know, from a nurse's angle and from what you're seeing from the physician angle, what's actually the realities of burnout and what can we actually do about it, right? So instead of just talking about the fact that burnout is there, describe what it means to you from a clinician perspective, and then say, what could we actually do, like to have things change post-pandemic for the worse or the better? And that could be technology solutions, it could be change in process, 
It could be moving people around to do things that they weren't doing before. Pretty much any idea. Just uh, kick us off, Deb. Sure, absolutely. And, and I have to start with what's the real problem here? And if you look at the way medicine is performed across the world, you know, that the fact that we require our physicians to document so much just so that they can get paid is really the problem. And the problem is that they're required to follow all of these documentation rules and regulations, and it creates a real hardship for them. So I think all of us can work with our legislators and those that are, you know, can make those, may, maybe reverse some of the CMS regulation and work with them to, to make that an easier process. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing at El Camino right now is we are using the data that we have regarding physician usage and we are able to see how physicians are using the EMR. And so we're able to see how much time a physician use at, uses in the EMR after hours. We call it pajama time. So in other words, after a physician spends their busy day in the clinic, they go home, they're trying to take care of their family. They're actually having to log in at night and sometimes finish their documentation so that they can get paid. And so we are what we are looking at that and we can actually see how much time each physician spends in each activity. And we are then working with our EMR vendor to put a strategy together to go work with physicians to help them um, really overcome some of the challenges that they have. And we just met yesterday. We're calling these sprints and we're going to take a team into the into each clinic and work with the physicians to say, how can we help you do the order entry process easier? How can we help you enter notes and, um, and, and do those, you know, those activities easier? So that's our short-term strategy. Our long-term strategy is we're moving towards ambient listening where physicians can simply talk and the EMR will collect that data, populate it, and then make that a, a much more, uh, I would say, uh, integral process between the patient and the physician, having that dialogue. The EMR is not in the middle creating the distraction. No, that's a great intro. And uh, Ashish, uh, if you think about what Deb said, two main things come to mind. One is physicians need to get paid. And two, they have to document in order to get paid. But so do many, many places. I mean, lawyers have to document in order to get paid. Lots of people have to document in order to get paid. So do you agree in general with the framing that Deb has laid out so well? Or would you want to add to that or, or uh, change some of it? Yeah, I mean, the difference between the lawyers and the doctors in terms of um, payment structure is the lawyers get paid for the time. Mm -hmm. For every time they spend, they get a payment back, right? Uh, the clock is ticking for them. For physicians, they don't get paid by the time, right? So there's a fixed amount of payment that's there. And if you have to document so much, you still get the same fixed amount of money. Um, and, and so I think there's a, there's a different alignment there. But also I feel a lot of the documentation is, I would say, a little mundane, so to speak, which is more for compliance. It's not clinically relevant. So, so anything that you, anyone is asked to do, which is not part of their core job profile, it's just that becomes an added burden. And if that happens every single day and multiple times in a day for multiple years, ultimately that catches up. And so I think that's what's happening in the burnout. I think what pandemic has done is actually increased awareness around this for sure. And it has also allowed that many of the things we felt have to be done face-to-face -face can be done virtually. So it has opened up a solution box that we can choose now. One thing which I want to kind of say, our approach has been to look at very holistically from a physician burnout thing, which means we do not believe that is limited first to physicians only. I think nurses have the same burnout aspect 
they document a lot as well. In fact, many cases more than the physicians. We have started seeing burnout among IT colleagues, uh, and that is more about remote workforce because they have not been able to kind of come together and have that, you know, I would say the support mechanism or the social kind of aspect which was there as part of the work culture. So I think it's it's there, and 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 the work gets imbalanced in the virtual environment. So I and we are looking at there was a study that came. Documentation alone is very important to address. I like ambient listening, which Deb mentioned, and others, but it still explains only 20% of the burnout. Mm-hmm. There is much more aspect in the burnout that we have to learn today. So we are coming with this thinking about this concept of well-being index. If you feel you're valued in the workplace, you may not feel that much burnout, even if you may be doing some documentation. So I think the 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 science is still early on this for us to learn more about it. No, I, I love that. And and before I bring in uh, Christopher for some solutions here, Deb, can you talk a little bit about that last piece that Ashish mentioned, which is documentation is part of it, and then there's more. What would you say is, from El Camino's perspective, what are you seeing as the more than documentation causing burnout? That's a great, that really spurred my thought. I'm glad you're allowing me to, to speak on this because I thought, man, I wish I had brought this up. You know, we are really um, thinking about how do you move the work away from the physician to others. And so, you know, one concept is you move part of the work away to the patient. You allow the patient to schedule their appointment. You allow them to enter the information into the EMR, into their portal, so that the, the physician or the nurse isn't documenting the medical history or trying to, you know, that, that they enter that information. You're allowing them to see their medical record, interact with their medical record. And so it takes some of the work away from the physician uh, to the patient. The other piece is to take the work away to their assistant or their nurse. And so having that person, um, you know, not getting their inbox cluttered with patient messages, but you have this team, we call it team-based care built around the, the physician that is taking care of all these messages that are occurring every day, triaging, so that the physician can focus on those things that they really do need to focus on, freeing them up to be a physician and not, uh, you know, a recorder or a message provider, but really being able to to use them, you know, have them use their skills where they're needed. No, I love it. And in fact, uh, you know, we've heard about this idea of operating at the top of your license. And it turns out that there is a bottom of the license that maybe we should get rid of as well, right? So just because they can do something doesn't mean that they should do that something. And we see this in other areas where in other sectors, it's very clear lines of delineation. You know, the pilot isn't out there serving drinks on an aircraft, but here in the world of physicians, the pilot and the drink server is the same person, right? And so that's, that is a major, major problem. Let's bring in Chris here specifically to talk about two specific things. One is the idea of uh, moving into an, an, uh, the acute care uh, environment with a cloud-based EHR sounds fast, fascinating and scary at the same time because it's, it's not easy. Uh, right. So we'll talk about that. And what, what is a cloud-based EHR in the way that uh, Juno sees it? And then talk about the specific things that Ashish and Deb just mentioned around documentation, who's doing that documentation, the ambient listening, what's new in your world? And we'd love to hear it back. You know, when you were a CIO, if you were looking at what you're saying, would you buy what you were selling? <laughs> so talk about that. That'd be great. No, absolutely. When you think about the generation of EHRs that we've gone through, uh, I mean, the reality of it, EHRs have actually been around since the late 60s in some form or fashion. They originally were 
documentation management tools. You scan information and you converted it from paper to an electronic system. And that was kind of the case up until probably the, the mid 80s and early 90s. And then we started uh, leveraging other technologies that were collecting and providing data. And then we wanted to start to try to so centralize the information we were getting from labs and from pharmacy and, and from other parts of the care process into some sort of centralized repository. And that's when this emergence of, you know, the true clinical-based EHR started to occur, but it was still very much driven to everyone's point around, you know, uh, pushing out a bill, you know, pushing out a claim. It wasn't really driven initially around the clinician's use of the technology. And then with the High Tech Act and some of the other regulations that are now forcing clinicians to leverage these platforms, and I call them the political determinants of health. We talk about the social determinants. They're the political determinants <laughs> of health that have an impact on the delivery of care. It started to put more burden on the clinician to be, to your point, the, the documentation person on within the electronic technology. Uh, and so it started to contribute to this, you know, enhanced well, burnout, the fact that these technologies weren't designed intuitively, which means you have to go back and do additional training and additional optimization within these systems. They were not designed based on the clinical workflow as well. And so the, the clinicians is having to go and click in a number of different places to try to consolidate information in their head to understand what the total care of that patient should look like or what they should do. And so what we've tried to do is start to reimagine what that next generation EHR really looks like. Uh, how do we reduce the cognitive workflow on the clinician? How do we now design a system that really works the way the clinician works, but still provides the administrative functions of collecting the necessary information to submit a claim? And so our organization um, embarked upon that task. And I don't want to sound like a sales guy here, but I'll just kind of highlight in general, at least our philosophy. And that is first and foremost, we want to design a system or have designed a system that works the way the clinician works. We design in a way that's intuitive. So it doesn't require you to keep going back and doing optimization training uh, for the clinician. We're starting, we're creating an open architecture platform. You know, there was a time where, you know, organizations wanted to buy one solution and then you had all parts of it, the pharmacy, the lab, the documentation, the registration, the, the financial pieces. But what we found that these EHR companies don't do all of those things well. They may do parts of it well and others they may fail that miserably. And, and with the cloud, uh, we've now moved to most, uh, much more of an open architecture uh, philosophy. You take a Salesforce, for example, which is a CRM. Well, Salesforce has a function of a CRM, but there are all sorts of applications that sit on top of Salesforce that extends the capabilities of the core platform from beyond what it currently uh, was designed to do. And that's what we're doing uh, with Juno EHR. We're creating a clinical repository that provides the basic functionality of an electronic health record system, but we're also you know, creating the connectors into it through Fire APIs that extends its capabilities beyond the core system. So remote patient monitoring, you talk about how to reduce that cognitive workload. Well, how can we push data into the system without the clinician having to do it? Through things like virtual scribe, for example, or ambient voice technologies or remote and tele uh, virtual care platforms and building AI behind it so that, that the system not only be, uh, is a tool for documentation, but it actually becomes an advisor, a, a colleague of the 
uh, clinician as well. It's taking all the data that it's collecting, uh, not only just the vitals, but the social determinants of health, uh, this remote patient monitoring information that it has, consolidating that, and then using AI and other machine learning to help the clinician make a better decision about the, um, the treatment of that patient so that they can do what they do best, which is focus on delivering care and, and making smarter decisions through that care continuum. So our philosophy is uh, to leverage these next generation technologies to now make that EHR an advisor, a colleague, um, and a useful resource to optimize, provide a smarter way to deliver care. And then finally, because we're moving to the cloud, uh, how do we commoditize the cost of these systems? I mean, one of the big frustrations for the administrative leadership in these organizations is the, the unbearable cost to acquire them and maintain them over their life cycle. And moving to the cloud allows you to now leverage them as a service where you don't have to uh, expend all that capital expenditure on servers and staff and infrastructure to support them, but you have a much more manageable and predictable operational cost that you can, you can manage and scale up to as your organization scales. Or God forbid, the organization needs to downsize, it can scale down without having to you know, have all that sunk capital costs in your infrastructure as well. Yeah, that's so that's so cool. You had me at, at open architecture, but then when you said reduce costs, that sealed the deal. So, and, and Deb mentioned a little while ago, uh, the self-service uh, aspects helping reduce uh, reducing burden. You've mentioned that uh, putting in a little bit AI and other things uh, are helpful as well. Deb, I'd love to bring you in to talk about this specific. There was a paper out that, that came earlier this year uh, in JAMA. The April, the it, it was published in May, but it was of the April issue, where they were citing that increased patient engagement and the you know using uh, their own data, getting into their EHRs, getting to portals, actually uh, contributed to more physician burnout, at least in this particular study. Does that sound right to you or does that sound like it's unintuitive and, and maybe different uh, than what you've seen with the self-service and the fact that patients have data? And the site, the paper was basically citing the examples of the physician still having 15 to 18 minutes with the patient, but now having to be prepared to read data that might have come in that morning or earlier that time or at uh, pajama time, reading it afterwards. So do you, when you think about that, how do you feel about uh, this patient self-service uh, adding on to that burden? Well, you know, it, we there was a lot of angst recently about the new regulation that we needed to open up notes to patients or allow patients to see their notes. There's a lot of concern regarding from our physicians regarding that was going to create more work and, and really more time in their day. What we found is it hasn't, that at providing patients access to their notes has not created this deluge of activity for, for the physician. I do think that it does, though, provide a patient that wants to know more about their care, wants to know more about their diagnosis. And I'm not sure that's a negative thing, even though it might at the, line, at the end of the day, there may be more questions, there may be something that you have to answer. I, I think that that's a positive at the, at the end of the day to have a patient that's engaged in their care. And as we start educating them, and we use our portal where we can put training on the portal for the patient to see, and, and as the patient becomes more engaged, then I think more of their questions are answered if, we're, if we do a good job of it. Hmm. It's where we don't do a great job of it, and we give them a little bit of information, and then the patient's you know, asking what that means. I mean, we had dialogue about how quickly we should release lab results to the portal. You know, it is the patient's information. And so we've now decided to release them immediately 
unless there is a, you know, the physician needs to spend some time talking to the patient about, uh, about a lab value or about a result. But we found that, that at the end of the day, that's a positive for the patient. Yeah, that's it, great to hear. It is their health, right? And so we shouldn't be the keepers of that information. We should be the providers of it real time. Just wanted to comment. Uh, and there's where the possibility of machine learning and, and AI comes into play as well. You know, again, to reduce that cognitive workload, if we can take that information that the patient and all these systems are providing and allow technology to aggregate that information in a way and serve up meaningful data back to the clinician so that they're not the ones having to digest all the information, but they're taking the summary of all that data that's being collected to make a clinical decision, then it starts to become a real value to uh, to the to the clinician. And I also will comment that, you know, when you think about the next generation EHR, it's really becoming more of a clinical repository. I mean, healthcare organizations have invested millions of dollars in these systems, and now they're trying to get their reap the benefits of them. And so they're starting to layer on top of them analytics platforms and AI platforms to start to mine that data in a way to make better and smarter decisions, both on the operation side and on the clinical side. And, and that data is now being leveraged by a broader audience. It's not just the patient. You've got pharma, you've got government agencies, you've got research facilities, academic academia that wants to have, that want to have access to this information. And so it, it truly is become the true currency within the delivery of care model now. And you're going to have a broader level of constituents that are going to want to have access to it. And so the technology has to be designed in a way that supports that both from, from the delivery of care, but from all these other you know, constituents who want to leverage the patient data as well. Yeah, you're so right, uh, Christopher. So when you think about um, this problem of uh, potentially increasing the workload of physicians with new patient engagement data, patient-generated healthcare data, and this new interaction that they're doing, Ashish, do you generally agree with what Deb is saying? Or does anything in that paper kind of resonate with you to say, yeah, you're taking on more burden because of that interaction that the patient is doing because we don't have enough self-service, uh, like Christopher is saying? Yeah, I, I think it's... Uh... It's a road, right? The, the technology comes, but is not fully mature in the first instance. And sometimes the burden gets created. And over multiple iterations, we find workflows, we find more AI embedded, so it becomes more automated, right? But if we just look at the trend, automation is the key that's gonna really help us. AI is definitely the trend. We also need a workforce realignment. We are actually working a lot on creating new workforce called digital monitoring or digital navigation experts, right? Mm. So when we turn on digital monitoring, the goal should not be physicians get it, the data back. It's actually looked by a digital monitoring expert who can be a master's in public health student, right? It doesn't have to be even a licensed practitioner. And we train them the trends. And those trends ultimately get trained from them to the AI as well. So even their burden gets less. And that way physicians do not get the burden except when there's an alert that they have to really act on in that regard. So I think we need to do a better job with this new workforce. Uh, and I think uh, we have uh, the opportunity with COVID provides that we can hire that from anywhere, right? They don't have to be within that same state. So some of those barriers of supply chain are also going away. And that will allow remote monitoring. We did an initial study on remote monitoring around five years ago, showed 50% readmission risk reduction in heart failure population. But now is the time embedding this digital monitoring experts, embedding the technology you can actually make mainstream, not just as a pilot. 
Right. And Ashish, what advice would you give to, uh, even though Chris comes from the hospital world and the CIO uh, role, if you were giving advice from an AI automation, et cetera, perspective to innovators out in the field about where they should concentrate their automation efforts, because we're seeing a lot of AI discussion, lots of people want to do AI, but are they focusing on the right things uh, from your perspective as both the buyer as well as the implementer at hospitals? Very tough to say they're focusing on the right things. I think it's a, the trend is definitely the right trend. And within the trend, the evolution happens when you see various use cases, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know when you start a use case that's the right use case necessarily or not, but you try it, validate it, and if then it becomes the relevant one, then you're in the right path. And if it's not the right use case, you leave that use case, go to the next one. So I think there's a little bit of iteration and learning, if, especially if you're at the cutting edge, at the bleeding edge, it is impossible for you to do right every single time because you're learning new things, which may or may not work, right? But I would say there are four or five applications that are coming, which are becoming much more validated trend in the AI space. And I would say, maybe I'll go on a limb and say in the next four to five years, you'll see these technologies mainstream across mm -hmm. different hospitals. So one of the technologies that's coming is the computer vision, which allows it, the images to be read, the patterns to be recognized, and provides uh, uh, extra guidance to the radiologist or other image readers. And if you really look at radiology, it's a very high cognitive field because you're looking at so much data points visually, right? And it is sometimes inhumane to actually find all those patterns when you're finding something right in the front of you, right? A big lesion, but there may be something hidden underneath it. So computer can actually have a very good peripheral vision. It can have a perfect peripheral vision, right? And that has been shown not only in radiology, but in the, also in my field in, in gastroenterology, right? We may not be able to find sometimes that polyp, which is just hidden or not shining up, but computer vision can actually bring that up. So I think that is one aspect of AI that's really, I think, is going to be a game changer and already started changing the game in that regard. I think the other aspect we are seeing, I would say automation and AI, I'm combining them both, is what was touched by that before, self-service for the patients. You have bots which can actually real-time triage the questions based on what is the patient is asking, right? So, so the patients have to answer less questions. What we don't want is the same linear burden you have on physician, you pass on the patient and expect <laughs> patients to do it. While they are not at all trained to do it, right? And that's like the thing they can't handle in the entire process phase. We, we have to use AI to be sure the, the, what are the least minimum questions we can ask to get from point A to point B, guide the patients through that, whether it's a referral, making appointment, or an intake questionnaire in that regard. Mm -hmm. And before you get to number three, uh, Christopher said a few minutes ago that they were reimagining the EHR, you know, from an open architecture, uh, more modern cloud-based. So when you look at your numbers one and two, and, and as you talk about the three, four, and five, what reimagining would you suggest to innovators? Like say, uh, like what we do, I'm a software engineer. All I do is I come you ask you, hey, smart doctor, what do you do during the day? And then I turn that into software. Well, that's not helpful today, right? Because you doing the same thing faster is just dumber, right? It just doesn't, doesn't help you any. The question is, what, does, what, what would reimagining look like in this world where the AIs and the bots, et cetera, are doing more? than what you would be doing as a doctor. Anything you've seen, and I, one reason I'm asking you this, Ashish, as, as, as I know really well, and maybe not everybody in the audience does, but the project you started at Mount Sinai that helps look at all these apps and find the right ones, get them installed and deployed into your uh, EHRs. 
is something you see, you're seeing a lot of these. So that's why I kind of like wanted to talk about the innovators to say, when you are building something, reimagine it in this way. So talk about one and two like that. And then when you talk about three, four, and five, maybe you can add to that too. No, absolutely. I think that's a great way to position. In fact, we just established at UC Davis a digital collab to actually work at the intersection of our health system and outside entities to co-create, co-design using design thinking, what is possible, whether it's a smart hospital or experience, right? And, and the reason is we not only, it's my perspective, it's a patient perspective we bring in, it's a nurse's perspective we bring in, it's a technology perspective, biomedical engineering perspective, right? To reimagine that. But if I have to give kind of some trends there, if I have to kind of restart the EMR part, maybe we need to use that the digital and data first strategy. It should not be you have an EMR with a repository, then an add-on tool of digital engagement or AI. I think it should be data and AI first, digital first, right? And I think if we start with that approach, we may end up creating, which may not look like an EMR, hmm. right? Uh, and then, right, I think Chris, Chris has some points. I want to pass it on to him for his- uh, no, no, absolutely. I think you're, 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 you're tracking everything you're saying. I'm shaking my head because first and foremost, you, you started out a, a conversation earlier about you know, software engineers building uh, NEHR and passing it on to the clinicians. I absolutely am a firm believer that the provider community has to be at the very beginning of the design process. They should be partnering with these technology companies uh, to build those solutions, to design those solutions uh, based on their understanding of their current workflow, but also reimagining how work that workflow should look going forward. And so what we did was we actually went out not only and hired doctors and nurses and pharmacists and other clinicians to be a part of the design, the UI, the UX design, and what they're looking for. We also went out to other markets, you know, the gaming industry, the banking industry, the logistics industry, to bring in people who bring those perspectives to the table as well, too, because there may be things in other verticals that we could take full advantage of in the healthcare sector that we haven't even imagined or thought about. Uh, and bringing that lens to the table, I think, is equally as important as well. So you know, that design process has to um, not only contain the people who are currently using the technology, but people who can reimagine what technology should be uh, within that uh, within that field of endeavor as well. And, and, and so, then, Christopher, before we give it back to Ashish, do you want to comment on his first and second? What uh, how, how does Juno look at this? Uh, those two? Yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer that the next generation uh, EHR won't be called an EHR. It's the clinical data repository. And around that clinical data repository are the technology tools that mine that data or provide input to that data to provide whatever that function is in the in the clinical ecosystem, whether it's you know um, patient engagement functions, whether it's the delivery of care function, whether it's surveillance monitoring or research uh, components. The technologies will wrap around the data lake of the clinical data that's being collected and extend the capabilities of that platform beyond the four walls of the hospital. So I am absolutely a firm believer that, you know, the next generation EHR is not gonna be one that's just based on the delivery of care, but it's about the, the amalgamation of all that information that creates this, this precision care that needs to be delivered from the time that person is born and you map their DNA to the time they, they pass away and you do an autopsy and understand why they died. And then collecting all that information and leveraging it in a way to provide using AI and machine learning to make that clinician uh, to be an advisor to that clinician 
for the next person that comes through the care process as well. We should always be getting smarter every time we treat a patient. That next patient that we treat, we should learn from the last patient that we treat. Yeah, so it's more of a life record here instead of a health record. So that sounds great. So Ashish, your 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 first one was machine visioning, and the second one was automation for better self service. What were uh, three, four, and five? Yeah, so so third one has been mostly around uh, analytics. You need to do a population health, not individual level, but population level analytics, right? So you can actually then say, oh, this person is at this risk out of this population. And then you have a much more intensive uh, kind of a, a program uh, for that person. Uh, I think that is something that we all have started doing in population health analytics, but needs to become mainstream in terms of predictive analytics. The, the other kind of technology which we are looking at the same time, which is a variation of computer vision, uh, is the same part, but it is always on looking at the patients mm-hmm. um, and anonymizing them and seeing what their activities are and then saying, oh, this person now has fall or is about to fall. Or this person, like, for example, now we have a vision technology, which is actually watching like suicide watchers, patients who have risk of suicide, normally you need a sitter for that person for 24 seven to keep an eye, they don't commit suicide. But you can now take that through a, a camera, an AI camera, and you can always say, hey, this person is doing fine, or the person is about to fall, or this person has now come into the OR, let me just ping the physician, the surgeon to come into the OR, right? So ambient intelligence has gone beyond just the sound in that regard. The fifth one I say is actually coming to ambient intelligence is basically Alexa and the sound, right? So we are able to actually have a different medium of communication and capturing that and automatically getting into EMR, right? And then takes all the niceties away. Hello, how are you? Comes to the core documents it and is done. And it can be much more richer, right? Because it's not boring one-liners from the physicians. And if you really take it further, you can have this conversation even outside the clinic and then have a clinic. So you can create multiple efficiencies. We use the ambient kind of intelligence in the right manner. So I think it's just, just amazing to see all this coming together. But you can imagine from a CIO perspective, it's not easy just to bring it and dump it, right? There's validation we have to do. There's security we have to do. There's a plugin we have to do in the workflow. And we can't unleash among all the physician. There's a training that has to be done. Once we know it is working the right way, then we have to train more people. Then it expands. And this combined with the security efforts we have to do within our organization, the new implementations of our existing EMR we have to do, the research we have to support. So... Basically, it's the same human bodies we have in IT, right? The budget increase is minimal, but we just can't take all of these technologies in at the same time. Our capacity is limited. And that's why many technologies are here, which should have been within our system, but it's our capacity to ingest them, validate them, train them, and then transform them. That is more linear. Yeah, that's right. And and in the April uh, JAMA article that we were just talking about, there was a term that they introduced called techno stress, um, which was capturing in one word what you were just saying, which is there's a bunch of stuff around the technology, the technology itself, and how do you get trained on it? How do you get untrained from your prior technology to the new technology? So all of that techno stress, I think, is is very real that causes the level of uh, burden that we see. Now, Christopher, 
Uh, you're welcome to comment on the three that uh, sure. Ashish mentioned, but I'd love for you to add on to that. Uh, this problem of, so Ashish is a buyer at a hospital, as an example. Right. There are incumbents that are there. Uh, you know them as well as I do. Absolutely. Uh, wh- what do you feel you can offer to the hospital CIOs and others that could go over uh, what the incumbents are doing and say, yes, it's worth going after what Christopher and Juno is doing? Absolutely. Well, I, I do want to first of all comment on a couple of the things that were said earlier. Uh, the hospital at home is definitely the, the emerging market uh, going forward. You know, the majority of healthcare is going to be treated, uh, less urgent healthcare is going to be treated outside of the four walls of the mm-hmm. hospital. And more, more importantly, closer into your own home environment. So those ambient voice technologies like the Alexas of the world are going to play a critical role in that. My Alexa just went off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're going to play a critical role in, you know, capturing patient information and then allowing clinicians who are going to be all over wor- the world. You're going to have people who work for a Cleveland Clinic or, you know, a USC or whoever that may not always be in the four walls of that hospital. They may be in Israel. They may be in Japan. Uh, you talk about you talk about radiology studies. I mean, those things are being read all over the world now. You, you don't necessarily have to have those individuals sitting in the four walls of the hospital. And so technology has given us the capability of becoming virtual clinicians uh, today. Uh, and that will continue to, to grow, especially as we see the shortage of clinicians now uh, in the marketplace, consolidating them into virtual um, clinics and virtual care settings is going to be the way to hopefully combat that. Your point in terms of how do we, how does a Juno now start to penetrate the incumbent market? Well, that's that's an interesting question. So one that we're living right now. I think first and foremost, we have to help our industry understand that technology is always evolving. You always should have a life cycle management strategy for any technology. And if you have technology that's built into your environment, you find a challenge to rip and replace or, you know, or upgrade from, then that's a problem. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a challenge. You need to start looking towards technologies that are composite in na- nature or disposable in nature. Uh, because why should I have to be burdened with a, a platform that is 10, 15 years old when the technology t- of today has surpassed it? And now I'm having to wrap around these, these solutions uh, to keep it viable uh, even more because that's even more uh, costly to, to do that. And so I think what you'll start to see over the next you know, three to five years, once we get past you know, this initial investment in these monolithic EHRs, you're going to see hospital systems start to, to want to commoditize the cost of this technology because it should. I, I wrote a, a, an article on the concept of the IT is the next utility. When you think about, you know, the water and the lights in a building, you know, in a hospital, you know, those things are pretty commoditized today. You buy those as a service, you buy those as a utility. Well, um, ideally, IT has now become your next utility. You can't run a hospital without electricity. You can't run it without water. And now you can't run it without IT. And now moving technology to the cloud and selling it as a service, it should be commoditized as well also. And so I think you're going to start to see hospital leaders like Ashish start having these crucial conversations with their leadership and asking themselves, why are we having to spend millions of dollars in replacement of hardware uh, uh, licenses and staff when there are platforms out there that allow us to be able to scale and commoditize that and move that to an OPEX expense going forward and allow us to shift when the market shifts or when the industry shifts or when new technologies emerge 
uh, in the market that were not burdened by that legacy platform. So that's one way that we're trying to approach it is because it's a platform, because it's open architecture and because it's cloud-based, the, the, the total cost of ownership for the organization becomes much more tenable uh, and, and much and a longer runway for them as well too, because now as technology changes and expands, I can integrate to that in a much more cost-effective way. No, and that makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, Ashish, when you think about this, you're, you're the nation, nation's app doctor. You know that without proper open architecture, you can't get apps done. Fire has been something you've been looking at for many, many years and have been pushing on it. So just in the last two minutes that we have left uh, before we close out is talk about how difficult it is for what Christopher is saying at just at UC Davis or Mount Sinai, where you've been, you've been at Cleveland Clinic as well. What do those incumbents mean in terms of burden reduction, and that unless those incumbents get shaken somehow, you can't really do burden reduction because you can't get the technology introduced fast enough. Am I being pessimistic or is there some truth to that? No, I think there's a definitely a truth to that. And I think uh, we try to address that by building this digital health formulary, which can connect to any EHR, right? And the goal was to create, build all this. Initially, we started with apps, right? But then very soon we realized that's more than apps. So we added chatbots. And now we are adding a lot of other digital assets right there. Mm -hmm. So it's creating a window of digital health automation and AI that is Fire API connected with the EHR, plug and play, right? So I think uh, I would say that that allowed us to actually go beyond each individual service line. Because once you have this formulary within your EMR, which is cloud-based formulary, you can embed anything within mm -hmm. just three API clicks, right. right? You pass on a single sign-on, you get the engagement data back, and you get the outcomes data back, read, write both of them. But I would say that has been just amazing success story for us. And now 22 hospitals have it. Uh, around 3 million people have got it. But I would still say it's early on the transformation, right? right? This should be 300 million should be getting mm -hmm. multiple times you know, in a month, right? So I think we're still very early. Maybe uh, we do know that vision may get more consolidated, right? We need more players like that to take us from innovation and validation to actually transformation. And we have seen that takes time, you know, because of all the traditional reasons we see. But sometimes I'm hoping with COVID is a pull approach, not just push approach, mm -hmm. where CIOs are getting dragged. Hey, we have to, we want to use it. And instead of being saying, oh, we have to use it. Exactly. Right, that's a big conversation change. Yeah, so Chris, Christopher, we've got about 30 seconds. If you sure. want to just kind of summarize and say, what can we? Can, what can a Juno uh, do to coexist as well so you don't have to look at a rip and replace? Sure, I mean, that's the beauty of an open architecture, right? It can, you can integrate to legacy platforms as well as next generation platforms as well. So why those platforms go through their life cycle and die out, you still leverage them as much as you can, but you do have to have a life cycle strategy for an organization in order to survive because the reality of it is those, those systems are not going to be able to, to be sustainable as our technology continues to emerge and change. You, over time, you're going to have to sunset them. Uh, but having and having an open architecture fire, you know, enabled platform gives you the flexibility to do that without having to completely disrupt your entire environment by rip and replace everything at the same time. And so I'm optimistic about that. The other thing I'd comment just from a humanistic standpoint, digital natives are going to demand it anyway. <laughs> And so, yeah, me as a baby, late, late baby boomer, you know, I, I didn't grow up with a computer day one. These people are born with them in their hands. They're using them at one and two years old. They're going, they are used to technology changing. 
you know, those of us maybe on this call are not quite as used to the technology changing. I still like my old iPhone and I still don't want to change to the next. These guys are looking for change. They're always looking for the latest and greatest technology and they're going to demand it as the customer, the consumer, the patient, the care provider when they become a part of that ecosystem. That's right. Now, as usual, the panel time flew by, but uh, we've got to close up now. Uh, and just uh, to add on to what Christopher before was saying is that uh, there, the patients uh, are certainly demanding it and the digital natives, the natives will do so. But from a hospital health system perspective, you have to be even more worried that your nursing staff and your physician staff who are now digital native mm -hmm. are leaving your hospital mm -hmm. because your technology sucks. That's right? right. And if you don't get, if you don't understand that, you're going to have already a hard, you're already having a hard time keeping staff uh, going. Burden reduction often occurs through process change, but sometimes it's just bad technology that you just need to get rid of in order to bring in something new. So uh, worth uh, thinking about. With that, uh, I'd love to thank uh, Deb. Uh, uh, she had to jump off uh, the, for the last couple of minutes, uh, but then uh, Ashish, she did a great job as usual. Christopher, thanks for the insights. Thank and we you. look forward to seeing uh, how well uh, Juno does over the next few years. Thank thanks, you. everybody. See you later. Take care. All the best, Chris. Thank you, Shahid. Thank Bye. you. Too. Thank you for joining us for this week's Health Impacts Digital Health Talk. Don't miss another podcast. Subscribe at digitalhealthtalks.com. And to join us at our next face-to-face -face event, visit healthimpactlive.com.